Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our love affair with sports starts at a young age, but as most of us get older, we realize we're better suited as spectators. For the few who rise to the professional level, these athletes enjoy a fan base that can rival and surpass the celebrity status found in Hollywood or, or in the music industry. That status brings with it the ability to attract a whole lot of media attention outside the sports world, which depending on the athlete can be a positive or a negative. Today where we live, we look at the role of politics and sports, specifically how some athletes choose to bring a lot more attention to social issues in our country and around the world when they use their clout to reach their fans fans who may not follow the nightly news as closely as the scoreboard. What role should politics play in sports, if at all? Do you respect athletes who use their star power to make a political statement? Or should they stick to their job as entertainers and just play the game they're paid to play? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Sarah Spain joins us by phone. She's an ESPN reporter, columnist, and co-host of The Trifecta with Spain, Jane, and Kate on ESPN Radio. Sarah, thanks so much for joining Where We Live today. Sure. Thanks for having me. When we look at the history of sports in the country, um, do you see athletes taking stands today and speaking out in ways that are different from their predecessors? Yeah, I think technology is one way that really makes it easier for someone to sort of dip their toe into athlete activism in a way that can be both beneficial um, and also can be dangerous. Uh, you don't have to call a newspaper and hold a press conference. You don't even have to call a reporter and give a one-on-one interview. You can post something to your Instagram. Uh, we've seen countless NBA players, WNBA players, just in the last few weeks uh, posting to social media about uh, racial injustice, gun violence, police brutality. Um, and we've also seen athletes. Uh, I, uh, there was a member of the Cleveland Browns who uh, posted an artistic representation of a police officer being killed. Uh, took it down immediately, but is now going through the process of trying to earn back the, the respect and trust of his team, of law enforcement, uh, and fans. Uh, so it can be very difficult, the ease with which you can step into athlete activism, but it also opens up the arena for a lot of voices. It must be a headache at times for their handlers, so to speak, yes. uh, because they can easily just go on that, that cell phone and tweet out um, a statement or a picture. Um, you, follow, you follow sports pretty closely. Uh, what's been the tipping point, do you think, in recent years? Um, I think in a lot of ways the transparency of, first of all, just our general life, our voyeurism has increased with our connectivity to everybody. So the fact that we can interact with celebrities and athletes on social media, that they can speak directly to us instead of through their PR. Um, we don't want them to just be athletes on the court and, and people who are trying to hawk shoes off of it. We want to feel a connection to them, and we want to feel like we really know them. And part of what that means is that we anticipate and expect them to have a voice on things outside of the usual. It's not okay anymore to just say, here I am by my shoes, especially, I think, in the millennial generation where they, um, they're able to weed out things that are paid for, 
things that are directly intended to sort of appear as though they're endorsements but are actually ads. Um, so they want, they want authenticity. And part of authenticity is for people to speak out about things that matter to them. And it's embraced in a way that hasn't always been before. You mentioned shoes. Just yesterday, uh, Michael Jordan released a statement saying that he no longer would stay silent on the recent acts of violence committed by police officers against African-Americans and also against police officers. Um, We have a a soundbite from a colleague of yours, Bamani Jones, um, on the ESPN radio show, The Right Time. He's talking about the different levels of standards that he sees in, in the sports industry. If you want Michael Jordan to say something about black kids getting killed in the street, why don't you want Peyton Manning to say something about black people, black kids getting killed in the street? Unless you think this is only a concern for black people, because I don't think it's only a concern for black people, because I think that we're all people. Right. So if this is really a concern. Then why are you looking at Michael Jordan like, hey, why don't you go uh, say something to the black kids? Like, where are you? Where are all these other guys? Let's say you don't even agree with that side of the cause. You don't care what happens to black kids. I don't see anybody pushing Peyton Manning to be like, why don't you come out here and say something on the side of the police? I don't hear anybody doing that either. Like, that is a burden that is exclusively placed on black athletes in positions of visibility. Nobody else has to live up to that. Nobody does. Sarah Spain, I mean, what's your reaction to what Bomani was saying? Oh, I think he's absolutely right. And it's a difficult conundrum because, you know, in some cases, I think it's relevant to speak directly to African-American athletes. Kenny Smith of, of TNT actually held a a sort of State of the Union, uh, you know, town hall sort of speech on Facebook Live where he said specifically to black NBA players, you make up roughly 70% of the league. Each team has a $99 million salary cap, so you get 70% of $99 million of every team, which puts you in a very unique position of being the richest African-American men in the country. Um, It's not because no one else should do anything, but because you are in that unique position of power and having a platform we ask that you do something. Um, and that is okay. But we also should ask, um, you know, allies of other races to speak out because, you know, unfortunately what's happened a lot in terms of the specific movements right now, particularly Black Lives Matter, is the speaker matters um, and, and the intent behind the movement matters. And it's gotten muddied in a lot of ways because of uh, uh, rogue people acting outside of the intended uh, efforts of Black Lives Matter that were never about violence. But if you do get those, those Peyton Mannings, those incredibly influential white athletes speaking out of this cause as well, it adds a power to it. And I think that's an element that we haven't seen enough of. There's a bunch of WNBA teams that have taken a stand, and every member of the team, black or white, has worn black warm-up shirts uh, to try to bring awareness to the cause. So in that way, we have seen sort of teams standing united as one, but uh, we certainly need a lot more white allies to speak out, particularly on this issue. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about politics and sports. Uh, should there be a place for political statements in the arena? On the phone with us is Sarah Spain, ESPN reporter, columnist, and co-host of the Trifecta with Spain, Jane, and Kate on ESPN Radio. Um, because, again, Sarah, you follow sports so closely, were you surprised that Michael Jordan, who has a history of staying silent on a lot of different issues throughout his career, um, that he finally came forward to, to, to speak about this? Yeah, I was um, just specifically in the depth of his statements and the specificity of, of his words. I think, you know, he's gotten sort of a bad rap over the years, particularly because of that famous statement that has always been attributed to him of mm-hmm. uh, Republicans buy sneakers, too. Um, he claims that's not actually a statement he ever made. And 
uh, even Sam Smith, the autobiographer who attributed to him, has said that he feels bad that that's something that sort of followed him for years. He has made uh, political donations over the years. He's spoken out specifically about North Carolina House Bill 2 as an owner of the Charlotte Hornets and how that doesn't reflect upon the values and, and um, inclusivity. And he's done a lot for communities in a, in a quieter way without being vocal. And I think this is, a, this is a step in the right direction because he does have incredible power. Um, but I think there's something to be said for the difference in the atmosphere and climate that Michael Jordan came up in, wherein it was incredibly powerful for him to become so well-liked that he transcended race in a way, which is, is a difficult statement because we never say about white people that they transcend race. They don't need to, right? There's, so it's, it's kind of a sticky phrase. But in a way, his ability to be so well-liked and to not have to advocate in the same way as the allowed him to ascend to a level of stardom that, that took that next step to being the first you know, majority owner in the NBA that is black and have a power change things, create a fun in his in his team that has more, you know, African American members of staff than any other team. So um I think now he's just adding that second piece of making it more visible to people. Oh, I think we're having trouble with uh, Sarah Spain, who's joining us uh, by phone. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll uh, head back to Sarah Spain with some points again about how athletes are speaking out, using their their influence uh, in the sports world uh, to make points about uh, politics and other things that matter to us uh, in um, our everyday society here. This is Where We Live. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the intersection of sports and politics. Uh, we were speaking about domestic issues here at home, but there are a few sporting events with more political undertones than the Olympics. This year's summer games start next week in Brazil, which is just coming off another major sporting event, the World Cup. The Rio games have received its fair share of negative press, from the Russian doping scandal to the Zika outbreak to the overall poor conditions on the ground there. Coming up, we'll hear about the political history of the Olympic Games. How concerned are you about these scandals and news stories out of Brazil? How will it affect your enjoyment of the games? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us by phone now is Priscilla Neri. She's senior program manager for Witness, the social justice organization, which is documenting the conditions on the ground heading into next week's Olympics. Priscilla, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us about your organization and its role and uh, the buildup to the Olympics. What's happening on the ground? Sure. So Witness is a human rights organization that helps people use video to protect their rights and to fight for their rights. Um, we've been supporting activists in Brazil since about 2011. Um, activists who have been organizing and trying to resist some of the negative impacts uh, in preparation for the two major sporting events that the, that the country has hosted in the past couple of years, the 2014 World Cup, and then next week, as you mentioned, the Olympics. And we've seen a sad legacy. As a Brazilian, I can say it's, it's especially sad um, the legacy that's being left behind, which is uh, families that have been forced, forcefully evicted from their homes, uh, increased militarization and police violence, particularly against uh, communities of color and communities that are poor and already underserved. 
um, and lots of public spending that should be going to hospitals and schools and teachers' salary actually paying for one month of touristic attraction. So we see that a lot of the benefit really isn't going to the people of Brazil, and that's one of the big underlying criticisms uh, around all the preparations for the Olympics. Also a corruption scandal over President Dilma Rousseff. Yes, it's kind of a perfect storm. Um, it's been really um, tragic and sad and, and kind of makes you feel really powerless to watch it from a distance because you have the political crisis, you have the economic crisis, you have the increased violence, and none of the, the you know purported uh, benefits and advantages of, of the preparations for these games, for example, um, environmental progress and a lot of the improvements in public transportation and other things that had been touted by authorities as so-called, you know, positive legacy of these games. As we head into the Olympics next week, we really see that that has not been the case. I was curious with all of the the issues on the ground in Brazil, um, the local issues that you mentioned that we heard first um, with the build up to the World Cup. Um, now that there's, there's a lot of attention on Zika, has that taken away attention from these other important issues? You know, it's it's curious because when we looked at the calendar for the Olympics, we we wondered if the International Olympic Committee had realized the scheduling of the games because one of the key decisions around the the impeachment trial, which is still undergoing in the Senate, and that could permanently remove President Dilma from the office, um, is the same week of the opening game. So there's a, a whole you know, coincidence of calendars that bring together the political crisis with all this attempt to um, not talk about that and really talk about the games and make sure that the sponsors of the games are securing their profits and that we're not really talking about this other side. Thankfully, so many people are talking about the other side that it's really been um, hard to, to not discuss it and to not discuss the impact that this has been having. Um, so Zika is just one more of those factors, along with the political crisis and the economic crisis and the violence that we've been witnessing. Mm -hmm. Any lessons that activists, uh, local residents have learned from um, the World Cup in terms of getting the world's attention on the, the issues facing uh, Brazilians this, this time, this ne next week? Yeah, and I'll say, you know, it's not just a lesson from the 2014 World Cup. When we look at these major sporting events, the history of them across the world, we really see very clear patterns in which, you know, these big entities come and say to a country, congratulations, you're going to host a party for us. Here's the catch. You're going to pay for all the costs. If anything goes wrong, it's on you. And here are our conditions. And these conditions, um, as I said, are very dire for the local community. One of the things that, that always happens when there's a World Cup or an Olympics, for example, is that they require a special set of legislative um, improvements or laws that are specific to the games. Some of these laws, in the case of Brazil, for example, some of the, the aspects of what they call the Olympics law actually override our constitution during the duration of the games when you think about the right to protest, freedom of speech, and many other rights that are enshrined in, in many constitutions around the world. And, and this is not just something that we've seen in Brazil. It's actually a pattern of how these major sporting events unfold. So what we see is really, you know, the cost of holding these events are socialized, meaning 
the people pay for the costs, but the benefits are privatized. And we see a very, very small select group of corporate sponsors and other types of you know, international investors who are actually uh, reaping the benefits of, of these games. I'd like to bring into the conversation Jules Boykoff. He's a professor of political science at Pacific University, also the author of Power Games, a political history of the Olympics. He joins us by phone early from the West Coast. Thank you so much, Jules, for joining Where We Live. Great to be with you. Thanks. So how unique do you expect the, the 2016 Games to be in the context of your work in the history of the Olympics? Well, I think your previous guest has made the really important point that what we're seeing in Rio is part of a larger process. And I think it'd be easy for people to just simply wag a finger at Rio and blame it on Rio, if you will. And that's wrong in a way. Don't get me wrong. The organizers in Rio have demonstrated seismic incompetence and rather incredible arrogance as well along the way. But it's part of a larger process of hosting the Olympics in the 21st century, whether it be the high costs, whether it be the displacement of local populations, whether it be the militarization of public space or those false promises. Uh, those are all patterns that we see in the Olympics in the 21st century. Um, and Jules, um, any, um, I guess, response to how the Olympics can positively affect these nations? Sure. Well, for starters, they could follow through on some of the grand promises that are made on the front end. Let's just take a look at one specific example. Um, with the water situation in Rio, back in 2009, when bidders put forth their bid, they said that around 80% of the water that would flow into places like Guanabara Bay would be treated for human sewage, uh, 80% at that time. Right now, we're looking at more like 20% if we're to believe the Globe and Mail reporting on this. Um, that's incredible. We're at the point now where if you accidentally consume three teaspoons of water, that you have a 99% chance of contracting a virus. So how could the Olympics be better? They could make the Olympic city better for everyday people afterwards because everyday people in, in each Olympic city pay for the games with their taxes, and they should get something positive on the back end. You don't have to tell people in Rio that there's a water situation, a water issue. This could have been a real positive development. You know, I think also more widely there's a lot we could do to cut back on costs because everyday people in the in Olympic City pay huge amounts of money, billions of dollars it now is to host the Olympics. I was noticing the other day that Rio is being described as only costing 11 or $12 billion, and I thought to myself, my goodness, we've really normalized spending billions of dollars on a two-and-a-half-week sports party. So dialing back the cost would be a really important development as well. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone with us is Senior Program Manager for Witness, a social justice organization which is documenting the conditions on the ground heading into next week's Olympics. That's Priscilla Neri. Also, Professor Jules Boykoff, a professor of political science at Pacific University, author of Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Today we're talking about sport, uh, politics and sports. And if you have a question for um, our guests, uh, how do human rights issues affect the way you watch international sporting events like the Olympics and the World Cup? Again, you can join the conversation conversation 860-275-7266, Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jules and, and Priscilla, we're getting a tweet from a listener who says uh, that the Olympics need a total overhaul, maybe have permanent rotating venues with alternating hosts. Uh, what do you think about that idea? Because I know on the, on the flip side, people are wondering, like you say, so much money is, is uh, spent on these sporting events, and the, the locals are left to pick up the pieces when they still have a lot of issues going on in their communities. Jules, you yeah, want to go first, I, I, or Priscilla? Sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, I'd like I'd like to just pick up on a point that Jules was saying that relates to that, which is, you know, a really important problem as to why these things go as they go is that people, ordinary people and citizens of these countries are excluded from the decision making around how this money should be used and how it could actually leave behind a positive legacy, right? Um, so when you think about the priority, for example, of the Providencia favela, which is one of the first favelas in Brazil, it's in Rio de Janeiro, you know, they don't have sanitation. And the priority that the government put there was a ferry cable that allows tourists to go all the way to the top of the hill to see the beautiful view. So this is a perfect example of how, you know, actual needs on the ground are not taken into account. Now, there are ways for people to watch these games, I feel, um, and in, in more aware and responsible ways. So, for example, there there's a coalition of independent media makers from all around Latin America and from the United States who are going to Rio next week, and we're supporting this effort to report on the other side of the Olympics, the side that the mainstream um, sponsors don't want to show and are not going to show, and who are going to go to the communities that have been forcibly evicted and the communities that have army tanks stationed permanently in front of their homes to ensure safety during the games um, and hear from them. So a really important point is, you know, making sure these stories are heard, making sure they're getting out and making sure that we're, you know, breaking the silence around the human cost of these games. And, and just by circulating those stories, by listening to them and by sharing them, that's already, already a really important part of, of making sure that this doesn't keep happening. And, and Jules, uh, before we go to a caller, um, you know, just again, um, do you think that there will be athletes in, in the next month who are going to, uh, you know, take a stand on an issue that's impacting their country, or is it going to be everyone's playing nice? Well, first of all, I agree with your, your caller, your listener, who says we need an overhaul of the Olympics, and I think a, a rotation of cities is a possible way to go forward. I don't, I'm not a big fan of just locating it in one city. Most people talk about it being Athens, and there's not a lot of evidence that the people of Athens actually want that to happen. So I do agree with your, your listener that we need to really make some big changes. In terms of the athletes and possible athlete activists, yes, I think we should have our eyes wide open to that possibility. After all, not too long ago, a fencer from Team GB, Team Great Britain, by the name of Lawrence Halstead, wrote a really interesting column for The Guardian where he suggested that athletes who go to Rio who don't speak out are sort of implicit in the processes that we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes. And so he's very well ready to uh, engage the complexity of the situation. And I think there are other athletes as well. Look at Carmelo Anthony, who very courageously has been speaking out around issues related to race in the United States. He'll be participating in the Olympics for the basketball team. And I think there's a wider point that should be made when it comes to the possibility of athlete activists, and that is that movements sort of scythe out space in front of athletes and allow them to step into that space and become athlete activists. And right now in the United States, we've got a really important movement raising vital questions, and that's Black Lives Matter. And people from Black Lives Matter have actually been going down to Rio. They went there last week and making the connections as sort of transnational ligatures between issues of police brutality in the United States and Brazil. And I think that bodes well for people who think that athletes need not check in their brains at the door and that they can show up and both participate on a really high level and ask really good questions about whether this uh, event that they're participating in benefits everyday people in Rio de Janeiro. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathancho. We're talking about politics and sports. If you have a question for our guest today, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Uh, Stephen from Wyndham, you're on Where We Live. Hey, thanks. I'm just going to take the flip side. I, I don't think a roadshow of the Olympics is cost-effective at all. 
And I think just holding the summer games in, in Athens would be beneficial. You just park it in one place. The Athenians, those people are broke. They would benefit. The world would benefit. What's happening right now is we're driving the games up so much, it's just communist countries and dictatorships that are winning these bids, one right after another. Now, this one I think will go to Paris, and I think Boston would have won. Uh, and, and the social movement part of it, I'm not seeing any benefit to the social movement. I, and, and I am pro the Olympic movement, but Chicago, New York, Boston, uh, Norway, uh, Hamburg, all decline the Olympics. Yeah. Will you be watching in the next month, Stephen? Um, I always watch the Olympics because it's, it's even though the IOC comes across as totally corrupt, um, I, I am for the athlete, and I'm for bringing the world together. Do you want to hear athletes uh, speaking out about social issues? Um, well, in 68, they had the Black Power salute. And those guys were kicked off the team. So I would advise the athletes not to get involved in politics. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you for your call uh, from Wyndham. Um, Jules Boykoff, if you've been able to hear our caller, um, you know, he was just talking about, you know, the, the need to um, have the Olympics in places where it makes sense. I mean, do you see the, the future of the Olympics uh, heading in that direction? Well, Stephen has raised a lot of interesting points, and one of them is absolutely correct that fewer and fewer cities these days are actually game for hosting the games. And if you look at the bidding around the 2022 Olympics that were just given to Beijing, China, the Winter Olympics, it becomes very clear that dynamic. So in the beginning, there were numerous cities from around the world who were interested in the possibility of hosting the 2022 Winter Games, but they started dropping off, and everywhere where a sliver of democracy was given to the people and they were allowed to weigh in, they basically said thanks but no thanks when it comes to the Olympics. And there were only two cities at the end that were in the bidding, and that was Beijing, which won it, and Almaty, Kazakhstan. And neither one of those countries are bastions of democracy by any means. So there's this dynamic where a lot of these mega sports events are going to authoritarian countries where they can keep the protests under wraps and marginalize them and that sort of thing. And I think the flip side of that dynamic, though, is when you have cities that are putative democracies that are hosting the Olympics as well, they need to become more authoritarian. So you see the sort of rise of that militarization to keep the peace. The Olympics and the World Cup have become huge, monstrous events, and along with that, they've become the target of terrorism. We saw that in Munich in 72. We saw that in 1996 in Atlanta, where an anti-abortion zealot uh, blew up a bomb and said it was because the Olympics were global socialism being foisted on us. And we saw it in 2014 in Sochi, where Chechen rebels said that the Olympics were a legitimate terrorist target. So, you know, there's a lot going on uh, with the Olympics right now, and it should be noted that the Olympics are really on their back foot. They're in a sort of slow-motion crisis, and I think that leaves them more open to the possibilities of change than we've seen in decades. Priscilla, did you want to join in on that? Again, Senior Program Manager for Witness, a social justice organization, um, just talking about uh, the Olympics as, uh, you know, possibly a target for terrorism. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really I want to make the bigger point that the, the biggest victims of state-sponsored terrorism um, right now are the Brazilian citizens who live in favelas. Um, I was really struck when, uh, I think you all remember a few weeks ago, when the torch was being relayed in the north of Brazil and there was an endangered species, a jaguar, who was by the athletes. And in, in a moment of confusion, the, the animal was doped and drugged up uh, for exhibit. And in a moment of confusion, that animal ended up being shot dead. And this created, you know, rightfully uh, a wave of outrage and massive international coverage about the killing of this endangered species. In the first six months of this year, there have been 240 innocent people killed in favelas of Rio de Janeiro at the hands of security apparatus preparing for the Olympics. I'm unable to even find their last names in the news coverage. So I think as we talk about terrorism, it's really important for us to understand that the people that are most victimized by this are the people that are living in these communities. And they're not um, silent about it. There's a whole week of protests scheduled for the first week of the Olympics next week. But this is also, you know, in the bigger picture, the, the headlines this week in Rio were that public hospitals were canceling or postponing surgeries in Rio to make sure that they had enough empty cots available for the tourists coming in for the Olympics. Um, when we look at the governor saying that there's a public state of calamity, which is usually only used after earthquakes or massive natural disasters, but no, he's declared a public state of calamity saying, I'm not sure we're going to be able to keep our hospitals going and our teachers paid. This is actually, in my mind, the most egregious form of terrorism um, that we are overlooking in a way and kind of supporting in lieu of, you know, these flashier headlines about you know, ISIS-sponsored potential attacks during the games when actually the, the bigger story about terrorism has been unfolding under our eyes for the last several years. At the same time, it is a valid point, though, when you have uh, all these nations, when you look at the, the concept of the Olympics and uh, uh, this peaceful gathering of so many countries, I mean, the underlining tone of, of terrorism there, I mean, it's a valid concern that people have at the same time looking at what's going on um, to Brazilians as well. Sure, and I don't mean to minimize it. I think it's an important concern. Uh, I just want to make sure that we're equally as concerned about all the lives that have been lost and the, who's actually paying the price for this games mm -hmm. um, and over the last several years and not just during the duration of the games. Uh, just uh, real quickly as a follow-up, Priscilla, um, you mentioned the protests that um, will be happening starting next week. Do you expect that uh, the major TV networks, NBC as well, to broadcast these protests? I don't. <laughs> I don't expect NBC to broadcast the protests, but luckily we don't depend on them or rely on them as much as we did even 10 years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of social movements and a lot of organizing that's going to be happening next week. Um, there's a week long of events in Sinalanja, which is the downtown public square in Rio. Several, several coalitions, national, international, are calling a series of activities to make sure that these stories aren't forgotten. And we, as I said, are supporting also a coalition of Latin American activists that are going to be working collaboratively to report on the on the social and human impacts of, of the games. Um, you said that you don't expect the, the network to pay attention to these protests, but because of, of social media, the fact that so many people are connected now and can see through um, live video what's happening on the ground, is there more pressure on the network's though, to at least address some of what's happening out there, because people can still see it on their phones. I think there's definitely more pressure, and that's something we celebrate. You know, it's harder for them to, to keep this narrative contained and controlled. 
Um, and, and that's, you know, we have our phones now and we can broadcast ourselves, as you say, and, and you know, that's, that's something that brings a lot of hope when we think about the kinds of changes we want to see um, for human rights more broadly. Um, so definitely there are other ways of people seeking this out, but I will say, you know, even when we see them covered by the major networks, um, it's usually in a, you know, two-second footnote and in a disqualifying and discrediting manner, um, something like, you know, political opposition, uh, organizes protests or, you know, vandals or violent riots, you know, and, and, and again and again we see the real story um, being swept under the rug. Um, I have a great friend who was actually in the meetings with Black Lives Matter last week in Rio um, and who lives in one of the favelas that's, that's we're most concerned about next week, um, who probably will have, you know, permanent army tank stationed um, in there to make sure that everyone is, you know, heavily, heavily surveilled and controlled and, and terrified. And he says, you know, when someone is killed by the police, whether it's in the United States or in Brazil, um, it, and whatever the pretext, whether it's Olympics or public security, um, you know, they're often killed three times. One is by the actual bullet. The second time is by the media coverage of that narrative, you know, which often justifies that, that injustice. Um, and then the third is by the legal systems that fail to hold, repeatedly fail to hold anyone accountable. And when we think about the Olympics, the most obvious example is the International Olympic Committee, which, you know, has very successfully brushed off any type of responsibility or accountability for the pattern of human rights abuses that have happened again and again and again anytime there's an Olympics. I want to turn back to Jules Boykoff, professor of political science at Pacific University. Uh, you're the author of Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Uh, before we, uh, we end the, the segment, if you could just uh, you know, briefly summarize some of those, um, those powerful moments in past Olympics that have gone down in history because of the political statements that have been made. Well, sure. I mean, I, I had the good fortune of getting to know a particular case from 1906. So Olympic activism goes way, way back deep into the history where there was an athlete from Ireland named Peter O'Connor who was an anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist, and he was forced to participate for Great Britain during those 1906 Olympics, something he was not at all happy about. And when he won a silver medal and the Union Jack was hoisted up the flagpole, he ran over to the flagpole, he shimmied himself up it, held aside the Union Jack, and instead waved an Aaron Gobrog Ireland Forever flag in its place, while his buddy Conley, he stood at the bottom protecting the police who might come in to try to stop him. So there's really a long history of activism and athletes when it comes to the Olympic Games. 1968 was referenced before. Uh, of course, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, that iconic moment of world history, not just Olympic history, but world history when they stood on the medal stand and thrust their black glove fists into the sky. And I think it's important to note also that Peter Norman, a sprinter from Australia, stood on the medal stand by them wearing an Olympic project for human rights button in solidarity. And so, you know, thinking about solidarity, thinking about possible creative activism here at 2016 Olympics, I think the moment is ripe for it, and I'll be interested to see what happens. I want to thank Jules Boykoff, again, professor of political science at Pacific University. You woke up pretty early to be on the show. Thank you so much uh, for your time, author of Power Games, The Political History of the Olympics. Also, My pleasure. Also, Priscilla Neri, a senior program manager for Witness, a social justice organization documenting the conditions on the ground, heading into next week's Olympics. Thank you, Priscilla, for your time. Thanks so much. Today we're talking about the intersection of sports and politics. Coming up, we'll look at the world sport, soccer. Oh, <laughs> 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on Thursday's show, we explore the impact of climate change on flora and fauna in Connecticut and across the Northeast. We'll hear from biologists, conservationists, science journalists, and you. Have you noticed anything different about the plant and animal species in your backyard? And what can historical records, like the observations of naturalist Henry David Thoreau, teach us about our changing environment? That's Thursday. Today, where we live, we're looking at how politics and sports intersect from domestic issues here to the world's focus on Rio next week. And now joining us by phone is Laurent Dubois. He's professor of history at Duke University, author of Soccer Empire, the World Cup, and the Future of France. Laurent, thank you so much for joining Where We Live. Thanks for having me on. So how did soccer become the sport in the world? Well, that's a great question. It's a sport like a lot of the other global sports that spread during the 19th century. Um, it's kind of codified and, and, and becomes what it, what it is today in, in 19th century England. Um, but both because of the spread of the English empire and also I think just because of some of the basic qualities of the sport itself, it spreads really quickly, really more quickly than any other sport and becomes kind of indigenous and embraced in all parts of the world, South America, Africa, Asia, um, really by the early 20th century. A lot of attention on the World Cup. Can you talk about the the history of that major sporting uh, tournament? So this is a tournament that's created in the wake of World War I. Um, the kind of lead creator was a, a Frenchman named Jules Rimet, who was actually a veteran of the, of the trenches of World War I. And as part of the post-war moment of a kind of people dreaming of, of trying to figure out ways how to avoid future wars, he imagined a kind of sporting event that would put nations together, um, but also provide almost a kind of universal language. He, he really believed that soccer could be this language that would translate across cultures and areas. And so having a, a global event um, would in some ways that kind of contribute to understanding across across borders. Why hasn't soccer um, become as popular here in the U.S. as it has in the rest of the world? Um, it's always a great question, and in, in many ways, I think actually, I, I would argue soccer may be the sport that's that's played by the most people in the United States as a kind of recreational sport. Um, but our our kind of commercial sports um, landscape is so is so deeply covered by football and basketball and other sports. Um, that it's been in some ways hard for soccer to get a foothold um, in comparison to some of those other sports. Um, at the same time, that, that has been changing. Um, and there are other parts of the world, too, where soccer is kind of a second to other, to other major sports. Um, uh, I do think that one of the places where you see uh, American leadership is that in, in terms of uh, women's soccer, um, the U.S. has been really kind of a pivotal place and has helped propel the growth of women's soccer globally. We're getting a tweet from a listener, uh, Roger, who's writing that in Spain, soccer in general is really political. Teams have nationalist class identities and rivalries, and ex- they express them through that. Can you talk about um, those themes mm-hmm. in, in soccer? Well, in Spain in particular, I mean, the most famous case is the kind of rivalry between Real Madrid and, and Barcelona, and Barcelona as a team that has, um, during the Franco era, became a kind of place where, where, where aspirations, regional aspirations and Catalan nationalist aspirations and just anti-Franco sentiment would be expressed the key to the politics of soccer is that, to some extent, people can always kind of deny that they're, they're being political in a soccer match. Um, and at the same time, many teams like the Barcelona team or teams elsewhere are actually often a vehicle for, for political aspirations and, and debate. And more broadly, um, I think whenever a team becomes kind of a representation of a region or a nation, um, that becomes an opportunity for lots of political discussion. Uh, in other words, does the team really represent the country? Who are these players? Are they, you know, representatives of our nation? And that's been something that's that's often um, been on the table in in recent years in Europe, for instance. 
This is where we live. We're speaking with Laurent Dubois, professor of history at Duke University and author of Soccer Empire, the World Cup and the Future of France. If you have a question for our guest, uh, 860-275-7266, are you a soccer fan? What can you learn about the world from this sport? You can join the conversation. Now, Laurent, I just mentioned your book. Can you talk about, you know, um, your focus on France and what we can learn uh, about the French team? Well, the French team has stood out for a long time in Europe, in part because um, really even going back to the early 20th century, it was a team where you often had players of African or North African background. In the beginning, these were players coming from colonial possessions. And after decolonization, um, the team was kind of a place where you had players who were often the children of migrants from former colonial possessions um, becoming kind of prominent figures in France. And this, this was most notably the case in 1998, when France hosted the World Cup at home. They won the World Cup thanks really to goals by, in particular in the final, by a man named Zinedine Zidane, whose whose parents were Algerian migrants. Um, So the team has become this really visible place where the question of what France is and specifically um, to what extent immigrants are part of France, are included in France, and and how they live within it um, has been taken up. And, And that has continued since 1998. Um, as a kind of persistent theme. So, so that's what the book is about, is about how, um, in a sense, soccer can become a place where a whole question about, about the nation's future can be taken up. I wanted to read an excerpt from an NPR story. Um, you mentioned the, the World Cup team. Uh, in 1998, a multiracial French team of black, white, and Arab origin players won the World Cup at home in Paris. Uh, they were seen as national heroes. That team from 1998 was held up as the team that represented the mixed society of France, that, that it really, really works. In football, anything works when you're winning. I mean, what's your response to that quote? Absolutely, and the same, you know, the same kind of projection onto the team could be used in negative terms. So when the team does poorly, very is easy for people to say, "Oh, the team is not doing well because we have too many players who are North African or African." And indeed, there have been lots of of racist attacks against the team. Actually, one of the reasons the French team has become so politicized is because starting in the mid 1990s, the National Front, um, the far right party, began to attack the team and say it said there were too many foreigners on the team. Um, this was always false. Actually, everybody on the team has to be a French citizen, um, and most of them had grown up in France. But the, the fact was, this was a way of kind of highlighting the presence of, of people of immigrant background. Um, so it can certainly go both ways. It's, it's never a simple story. I think the, the key is that it's such a powerful symbol, and it draws so many people's attention that it becomes one of the most important vehicles for people to, to discuss really what they think their country is and what it should be. How has that rhetoric um, worsened, if at all, uh, with some of the recent terrorist attacks in France? Well, it's been it's gone in a in a few directions. I mean, actually, in, in the, no, the the attacks in Paris included an attack on a, a soccer game. So the Stade de France um, was attacked by bombers. Um, the kind of attack was foiled, so that most there were not that many deaths as the, uh, as there might have been. Um, but, but that's kind of critical because it actually gives you a sense that, to some extent, the, the terrorist groups wanted to target uh, the football stadium precisely because it has been a kind of symbol of people you know, working across boundaries and across these lines. Um, so you, you see a lot of different folks kind of taking aim at it. In the most recent European Cup, France did pretty well. You know, They did very well, actually got to the final, but then had a very disappointing uh, final and lost in the final. But nevertheless, uh, you did see a kind of moment of real kind of embracing of the team, and this is a team in which many, many of the players are uh, of African background. Um, so once again, you had a kind of possibility that, that the team would become a symbol of, um, I guess, you know, reconciliation or a kind of understanding or of a different vision of France um, than, than some would have. 
You mentioned the Euro Cup. Uh, beyond the, the violence in France, we've seen uh, <laughs> the fallout of Brexit, uh, hooliganism, uh, what's been going on with Russian fans. I mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, how we saw that play out during the Euro Cup? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, what's remarkable for me is whenever you go into a tournament like this, what you can predict with certainty is, is some way politics is going to interfere or going to become part of it. I didn't know how it was going to play out in this particular tournament. You definitely had, rather than uh, the, there was a lot of concerns, obviously, about terrorism and security, the violence that ended up happening was, was the result of fans, particularly kind of Russian and some English fans, fighting in, in a kind of throwback to an earlier period of, uh, of European footballing history where there was a lot more of that. Um, but then you also had this, you know, this remarkable confluence of England uh, both uh, voting for Brexit and then just right afterwards losing to Iceland in uh, the, the European Cup, which was this really shock defeat. And generally, the possibility of a, of a nation like Iceland, which you know people don't think about that often, it's, it's about you know 300,000 population, suddenly becoming something on the world stage that people admire, and and what that means, I think, was was one of the kind of really charming stories about this European Cup. Can you expand on hooliganism? I mean, it's fun to say, but can we talk a little bit more about yeah. <laughs> what we've been seeing? Well, there have been going back a ways, and this was especially bad in the in the sort of 80s and 90s. Um, just basically, fan groups who attach themselves either to a, to a professional or, or a national team, and become involved in these kind of regular conflicts, uh, either with groups of fans from other teams or with the police themselves. Um, just and. You know, there's a thin line in some ways. I mean, in some ways, a lot of teams, of course, love to have really passionate fans and, and really intense fans supporting them. That's part of what makes the, the team great. Um, but then, obviously, that can shade into violent behavior or kind of attacks against one another, which is what we saw in Marseille right at the beginning of the European Cup. Um, why the teams draw it, of course, they can be a draw sometimes for, for arch-nationalists, um, for people from the far right can be attracted to these to these groups. And so sometimes there's direct political overtones. Sometimes it's really simply a, a group of people who are, you know, eager to, to get into fights um, and to express themselves that way. So the the last couple of decades have seen a, a lot of pressure um, to kind of control those behaviors, as well as the ongoing problem of racism among fans, racist chants against black players, which is a, a serious issue throughout Europe as well. And how is professional soccer in Europe different from these nationalized teams? So the professional teams are organized in leagues, um, and these are, you know, they're different kind of teams that, that are operating within within national leagues. And then you do have the, the uh, a kind of Champions League, which brings together co- uh, countries from throughout, I mean, uh, professional teams from throughout Europe. Um, so that's a qualitatively different thing from the national teams. The, the national teams are made up of citizens of that country. Um, they are often players who themselves play on professional teams during the rest of the year. Um, but when they represent the nation, they're brought together on a very different pretext. So rather than a professional team which really just buys and sells players the national team is a representation of you know kind of citizens of that country who are coming together to play play as a nation during that tournament now, Laurent, our, our wider theme today was talking about politics and sports and should there be a place I mean how do you think soccer can help uh, viewers understand the rest of the world better I mean, I think every one of these tournaments, you know, just brings people in contact with different parts of the world and kind of internationalizes our, our vision of the world. Um, because soccer is in some ways, you know, pretty, pretty easy to comprehend. I mean, it's a, it's a sport that I think people can get a handle on pretty quickly, even though there's a lot of layers and nuance to it. Um, but then the, the way in which different teams play can, can be an interesting introduction to different parts of the world. But I think more importantly, there's a way in which um, 
this is probably one of the most palpable ways in which people kind of sort of look at their nation. It's almost like soccer becomes kind of a mirror for different countries. Um, if you think about it, we, it's hard to kind of grab onto your own nation. You know, you're, it's kind of an abstract principle. Obviously, we have political representatives, we have flags, um, but there's something so real about you know 11 players going onto the pitch and what they do that night will sort of determine. Um, what happens to your country in a sense, at least in, in, in that moment, right? And the kinds of, of celebrations that happen around these things are extraordinary. You know, there are moments of national unity that are that are kind of unparalleled. So all of that makes it a, a, a place where, um, you know, you can really see, I think, the desires that people have for a kind of unity um, and the ways in which this, this kind of sport allows people to kind of project onto it certain hopes and aspirations. I want to thank Laurent Dubois, professor of history at Duke University, author of Soccer Empire, the World Cup, and the Future of France. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Today's show is produced by Tucker Ives, who's moving on to an exciting new role as part of WMPR and CPTV's digital team. We'll miss his influence on the show, including pushing hosts like myself out of their comfort zone. Thanks for your work, Tucker. Also, the Where We Live team is welcoming new producer Jeff Tyson, who moved to Connecticut. I'll say that again. He moved to Connecticut from Washington, D.C. Jeff is a Rochester native, a Columbia J School grad, and has worked for shows like NPR's Weekend Edition and Tell Me More. We're happy you're here, Jeff. Thanks also to producer Lydia Brown, who filled in as technical producer as we wait for Kion Wolf's return. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening.